You insist that the weight of the world should be on your shoulders. Misery. There's much more to life than what you see, my friend of misery. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Rish Outcast. I am Rish Outfield, and this is another one of those shilling episodes where I try to get you to buy something that I have written. However, so uh, yeah, this is an episode where I'm talking about something that I have written, but you guys will get a unique treat, something that, uh, well, I think there has been an episode before where I unearthed an old recording, but it's been years and years since I've done it. This is exciting in my mind just so weird that this exists, but I'll share it with you in just a minute. Let's go back to 2018. At the beginning of every year, almost without exception, one of my New Year's resolutions will be, hey, let's write more in this new year. And sometimes I will start writing every single day and, uh, you know, it lasts two weeks, it lasts a month, two months. You know, last a hundred days or something like that. Right now, in 2020, it's been over 300 days in a row that I have written every single day. But 2018 dawned, and I wasn't feeling it. I wrote an essay about Luke Skywalker, and that was it. That was the only thing that I had written that whole year. And every February, there's the writer's conference that I look forward to and that I go to. And it's three days of being around creative people, hearing successful people talk about their work, about their art, about what they do to motivate themselves, to put their work out there, to get it noticed, to make it as good as it can be. And that stuff usually energizes me. That stuff gets me excited about creating art. It gives me a shot in the arm and I tend to write good and hard after that stretch, after that conference, but not in 2018. Each day that year that I went to the writer's conference, you know, I took notes, I went and I paid attention, and I waited for the moment when I became inspired. And when I said, yeah, yes, I'm going to do this. But it never came. It didn't happen. And I remember calling Big Anklevich after either the Friday or the Saturday and saying, dude, I'm just, I don't care. I'm thinking of myself as a writer in the past tense. Help me. What what can I do? What's, What's wrong with me? And he's like, you know, I've gone through this before. I think everybody goes. It's, you know, it's writer's block or it's a lack of anima. You know, it's, it's just a cycle that people go through and you're at the, you know, the low point in your cycle. And I said, maybe we could collaborate, you and I, on something. And I'll start to feel it again and I'll start to want to write again. And... Uh, Big didn't necessarily want to collaborate with me at that time. And I I understand. I am headstrong. And I've been doing this for so long that 
I feel like I know what I'm doing and I don't like to be told no and I butt heads with other people and it's rare that I will back off and say, oh, you know, you know best. I mean, if you think about it, I decided in 1990 that I wanted to be a writer. And that is more than a lot of people's lifetimes. And so I can understand Big not wanting to collaborate with me, but he said, you know, something we've been talking about for years, for a dozen years by that point or longer, was to write a story inspired by the title of a Metallica song. Let's do that. I said, okay, so we're going to collaborate on one. I know you always wanted to write a story called The Thing That Should Not Be. And he said, yeah, I'm thinking about doing one called The Frayed Ends of Sanity. And I was just like, oh, cool title. Because that's something that Metallica has in spades, is good titles for songs. Whether you're a fan or not, they just have these really evocative, cool-sounding titles almost any of which would be great story titles. We talked, you know, in like 2000, 2001, about putting together a whole collection of stories based on Metallica titles. And I remember, I guess I sat down about 2005 and I wrote a bunch of Metallica titles down and an idea that you could have for a story based on that title. And it never went anywhere, but I know that that disappointed Big. And so here he was in 2018 and he said, well, I challenge you to write a story based on a Metallica title and we'll run it on the Steve. I'm holding you to this, you can do this. And so I looked through a list of their titles and I found a bunch that could make for good stories. I mean, just the same as I had in 2005. But I, I stumbled upon one called My Friend of Misery. I don't know. I don't think that it's a remarkable song. I listened to it, hoping that it would inspire me, and it doesn't do anything for me. But I thought about a dream that I had had a couple of years earlier. I think it was probably 2016. 2015, uh, maybe it was 2017, I had had a bad dream, and for the first time in my life, as soon as I woke up, I grabbed my phone and I recorded all the details I could remember about that dream. And then I went back to sleep, and by the time I woke up the next morning, almost all of those details were gone. In the way that always happens with dreams. But I had that recording. And because I had that recording, I still remember the details of the dream vividly. I did it when I was in high school. I had a nightmare and I got up and I turned on the light and I wrote down in my notebook every detail that I remembered about that nightmare. And I still remember the nightmare all these years later because I wrote it down and probably reread what I had written down over and over again, it's really useful doing that. Uh, and it's rare that I've ever had a dream and written a story based on that dream because of the way that dreams work. They're illogical, they jump around in time, 
or they just start right in the middle of this is what's going on. And your brain just accepts that that's what's going on because that's the nature of dreams. Your mind being active, going over things that it's concerned with, or afraid of, or hopes about. And usually, for me, the dreams that wake me up or the dreams that I'm having when my alarm goes off are the ones that I'm able to remember. But even then, they fade. So here is the recording that I made of that dream. And you've got to remember that I had just awakened and, you know, you're groggy, your mind, your body, they're, they're not quite where they are when you're making your way in the world today. So uh, give that a listen. Uh, it's five something in the morning. I had a nightmare and I actually woke myself up with my... I guess it was my moan. One of those where I was, I was trying to cry out and I went, oh, you know what I mean? It seems so much louder than it is. Okay. Basically, I was about 11 or 12, I think. And Lance was a little, little kid. He was my little brother and he was just terrified of, and I don't think it was the boogeyman. There was a name for it. And I, I berated him. I made fun of him. You know, that he was six years old or whatever and still believed in the boogeyman. And Lance says something about, yeah, I saw it or I heard it or, you know, it, it, it made a noise. It said something. Maybe it was the Babadook. And uh, I went to bed and I was in that the, the second room across from the bathroom. And... Uh, yeah, there was a definitely a boogeyman. It was coming from the closet. You know, it was one of those where I had made fun of him, and I was stubborn, I was a bad kid, and then sure enough, it came. I think it, it either said my name or said something. You know, maybe it said, Bye Bye Duke. And uh, that was, I think that's it. Just It was there. It was at the foot of my bed. It came out of the closet or something. and That's it. That was enough to wake me up. But I thought, what if we tied up some kind of net? And in my mind, it was that you push a button and the net drops. And the kid captures the boogeyman. He catches it. It's, it's all tied up in some kind of net. It's, it's wrapped up. And, and what, if you, what if you captured the boogeyman? You kept it prisoner and... I don't know if you torture it. I would love to torture the shit out of the boogeyman. You know, with like matches and needles and battery acid. You you force the boogeyman to help you in some way or to be your servant to make po you powerful. See, I'm, since I'm awake, it sounds stupid, but uh, unawake, I was like, oh, this is, this is solid. You bring in your little five-year-old brother you know, and, and what, you've caught it, and together you, maybe it's the little brother's uh, idea that you make it work for us instead of against us, because it has magic? I I don't know, anyway. Uh, in the end, the, the kids form a friendship with the boogeyman, you know, whereas it would prey on children, it gains some kind of respect, and, and in the end, you know, they let the boogeyman go back into the closet, and 
It's almost a tearful E.T. thing. Or maybe it's not. Maybe there's like a handshake and, uh, and the boogeyman disappears. But that assumes two things. One, that the boogeyman can be uh, communicated with. You know, it's not just a being. It, it's a, a thinking, speaking creature. And two, that the boogeyman can be trusted, that it won't seek revenge. And that that's a real problem with the story. I mean, if, if the boogeyman barely communicates, that's one thing. But that you could trust this thing not to come after you, that's much harder. Anyway, I'm going to go back to sleep. It's exactly 5.30 a.m. But uh, that was my idea. It seemed great when I first pushed this button. Because, you know, I had a nightmare and I was trying to turn it into something positive. I, I will talk to you later. So I, I had that on my mind. As just, you know, it's a dream that I had. And somehow something clicked in my mind. The idea of that, my little brother talking to the boogeyman, and the title, My Friend of Misery. And so I thought maybe I could write a story about that. I jotted down a few notes of, of things that I thought would be interesting, but the thing that most caught my imagination was the idea of a little boy befriending the boogeyman. Now, in the two years since I wrote this, I have discovered that that's not an entirely novel idea on my part. But at this point, I just have to accept that everything has been done and it just can't bother me like it used to when you would find out that there was something with the exact same premise as something that you had worked really hard on. It's still disappointing, but nobody is going to write the exact same story that I wrote. And when I started writing it, for some reason, and I don't know at this point why I chose to do this, but I changed my character, the primary protagonist of the story, I changed him to a sister, to a teen girl. And I named her Brielle, Brielle Montrose, and her little brother Brent Montrose. And I decided that they lived in Los Angeles, and she had been a child actress, but had not been able to cut it as a child actress. But now her brother was around that age, and he was really good at it. And a lot of the story began to revolve around that aspect of their lives. And Brielle's jealousy, I guess, of her little brother's success. The initial idea of the story was, what would it be like if you had the boogeyman as a friend, as a best friend? What might that do to you? And it sort of became a commentary on Hollywood and child actors and the corruption that happens to these kids. I guess a parable, you could say, if you want. No, it's, it's pretty on the nose, 
however, just comes right out and says, these are things that happen over and over again. And Hollywood gobbles up these talented children and it spits them out. And now a word from our sponsor. Now that's weird. I could have sworn I locked it. Hey there, Jake from State Farm. Jesus, what are you doing in my house? You left the door open again, neighbor. Well, be that as it may, you didn't answer my question. Oh, that... You know, that Andrew Sebastian Klosser discount you gave me on my insurance sure made my life easier, Jake from State Farm. I just wanted to thank you in person. Oh, all right. But here's the deal, Andrew. State Farm offers the same great rates to every customer, not just you. Are you telling me I'm not special? Oh, no, no, you're, you're uh, definitely special. That's what I thought. After all, you got me surprisingly great rates on my car and boat insurance. Well, that's what I do. I use that boat to dispose of things. I take it far, far out into the ocean where no one can see what I dump overboard. So I really appreciate it, Jake from State Farm. Well, it's uh, uh, no problem. If you're finished here... I slept in your bed for a little while. It's very comfy. Right. But you must be going now. Right, Aaron? It's Andrew. Andrew Sebastian Klosser. Three names. Like we always have. Right. Sorry. I just... I think I need to be alone right now. Sure. Let's be alone together, Jake from State Farm. You know, you can just call me Jake. We are neighbors, after all. Neighbors. And soulmates, wouldn't you say? Neighbors. And like a good neighbor, you really ought to cut this visit short so I can get some work done. Work. Right, insurance policies. Filing payouts. Denying claims for spurious reasons. Legal technicalities. Yes, exactly. I sure... Enjoy watching you work, Jake from State. Thank you. Now, if you'll be on your way. Perhaps you'd enjoy watching me do what I do best also. And what is that? Well, it involves making dolls of my many victims, using their own hair, skin, and teeth. I, uh, am going to call the police now. That's probably a good idea. I'll race you to the knife rack, okay? Well, listen, I... One, two, three, go. No, no, please, put that down. No, no! Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What the crap? And unfortunately, the story just got bigger and bigger as I was writing it, to the point where I thought, oh no, we can't run this on the Dune, Steve. This is going to be 20,000 words long. Meanwhile, Big was writing a story that he called The Frayed Ends of Sanity, and he was writing, I think, every single day, 
doing a fine job of, you know, setting goals to, to, to do this and holding himself to them. And good for him. I got it into my head that maybe I could end the story early on at the moment when Brielle discovers how corrupted her little brother has become by this friendship. And so that was a goal that I said is, okay, I just want to get to that point and then I'll write the end. And that's what we'll put on the Doonstief. And then I can continue beyond that point of like a part two. It started to feel like it was going to be a novel rather than a short story or a novella. And at that point, I had only ever written one novel. It just was surprising just how out of hand it got. But I didn't give up on it. And when I reached that point where I wanted to say the end, I didn't. I just kept writing because I was enjoying the story. I wanted to know how it would end up. And a few things surprised me about it, especially that I, I started to be curious about Brielle's life. I started writing things that had nothing to do with her brother or the boogeyman. I, I think that's probably a major flaw of the story is that I just cared more about Brielle than I cared about Brent. After all, the story is called My Friend of Misery. It should be Brent's story of what it's like to have the boogeyman as a best friend, but that's not the way that I went. So in 2018, I did finish the story. I got to the, the end part. And uh, it was a, about the last project, the last major project that I did in my notebook. Um, it takes so much time to type things up from my notebook that I decided to not do that anymore, that I would start just writing in a word processing program. And then once I finished the story, I could publish it instead of saying, okay, once I finish the story, then I have to type it up and then I could publish it because there are still stories that are in notebooks that I've not typed up and, and they'll never be shared with anybody because they're in manuscript form. But the story itself, once I typed it up, was about 30... 2,000 words, 33,000 words, which is not long enough to be a novel, but it's way longer than a short story or a novella. It just was too long. And yet there were aspects that I was curious about where I felt like I could expand the story, especially the latter half of the story after I reached the point that I was saying the end in my mind for sending it to Big Anchorage. I never did send it to Big, but one of my goals for 2020 was to either publish My Friend of Misery or uh, a sidekick to Miracles, which was a sidekick chronicles, a Ben Park story that I wrote. Was it that same year, 2018? Maybe it was 2019. I chose to do My Friend of Misery because the Ben Park story, I wrote it and then I regretted not touching on certain 
um, elements of the story. And I decided to write another story called Sins of a Sidekick that would take place before a sidekick to Miracles, where it's been dealing with having done this thing that he does at the end of a sidekick's journey. I, I, I had this idea of Ben going off and helping a preacher, and the preacher is, you know, kind of a, a harsh taskmaster. But as Ben spends time with him, he starts to wonder if this man is really a preacher at all. I, it's a story that I really, really wanted to write. And I remember pitching it to Big Anklevich and him saying, yeah, that sounds good. And so I chose to do, to put out My Friend of Misery this year instead of the Ben Park story. And I've spent the last couple months working on it, uh, watching the story get longer and longer. I did discover that there was a, a, a section from the notebook that I never typed up. It expanded the story a little bit. Working on it each day expanded the story a little bit, 100 words here, 50 words there, until it finally did eclipse 40,000 words, which is what the Hugos call a novel. And I think it's now around 42 or 43,000 words. Uh, and it's done and it's out there. So here is an excerpt from the audiobook. Uh, this is early on in the story where the boogeyman has come and terrified Brent and made it clear that he's going to come back because this being feeds off of fear. It's delicious to him. And so they do this thing. Brielle had called Brent's cell phone, making sure her own was fully charged, and put the call on speaker, intending to stay up all night monitoring him in the other bedroom. Brent was dozing, not snoring exactly, but definitely breathing noisily. Brielle thought for sure the sound would keep her awake, but it was more than an hour after this thought that a noise woke her, not from her room, but from her brother's room. It was a laugh, a male, scratchy, adult laugh. Brent! the voice said. Brent, my boy, it's time to wake up. Brielle heard her brother come awake then, with a little gulp and a cry. She suddenly had to go to the bathroom herself, and used that physical motivation to get her up and out of her bed. She grabbed her weapon, the long metal selfie stick she barely used anymore, and seemingly the most dangerous object she owned and headed out the door, remembering to go back to the bed and grab her cell phone, and switched it off speaker again. She went to the hall as quietly as she could, and waited by the door. She held the phone to her ear. Inside the room, she heard Brent whimper. What do you want? Why, you, Brenton Montrose. And then that laugh came again. Brielle entered the room without knocking, forcing herself to act rather than react. A shrouded man stood in the middle of the bedroom, one mummy-like hand reaching for her brother. 
The boogeyman turned at the sound of the door, but Brielle was already attacking. She swung the selfie stick in a sharp arc, and it connected with the creature right across the back with a loud snap. It wasn't like hitting a person. It was more like stepping on a bag of potato chips. The boogeyman made a satisfying, ah, sound, and staggered. Brent, as planned, grabbed the end of the jump rope he had set beside his bed, pulling it taut near the intruder's legs. It didn't trip him up completely, but he did stumble and drop to one knee. Then Brent was up and out of the bed, still holding the jump rope and moving to wrap the creature up in it. Brielle swung her club again, harder, hitting him between the shoulder and the neck. It was almost as though she had struck a scarecrow or a piñata in the shape of a man, that he could go down like that. She swung it again, actually lessening her force on this one, and it hit him in the back of the head. She heard the man gasp a second time, and she regretted swinging it even that hard, even though that made no sense. The chair! Brent loudly whispered, pushing it right up against her. It was the wheeled leather chair from Mom's office, where she did her business and used the computer. Brielle grabbed the boogeyman under the arms and lifted him up, as Brent pushed the chair right into the small of his back, forcing him to either sit in it or trip over it. He struggled in her grasp. It shouldn't have been possible to get him into the desk chair. He was bigger than both of them. Either she had really done some damage with the selfie stick, or he was as frail as their grandmother right before she died. The moment the boogeyman was in the chair, Brent began wrapping the jump rope around it, moving as only a sugared-up little kid could do. Brielle raised her weapon above her head, threatening him, but not hitting him with it again. Brent had run to the door and wedged a Harry Potter book into the crack underneath it, a trick Brielle had shown him worked just as well to keep anybody from opening the door as a lock would. She gave him a nod, and he ran back to her side. All the while, the creature was breathing heavily, but making no other noise. Maybe like them, he didn't want to wake their parents either. Brielle pulled the jump rope tighter and hooked it to the bottom of the chair. From that angle, she looked up at the... at him, and the shadows were still completely covering his face. It wasn't possible, was it, for him to have his face shaded so completely in the middle of a brightly lit room? Yet he seemed to have no face whatsoever, and it occurred to her that maybe he didn't. This was the boogeyman, after all, not a human being, and who knew how a ghost monster functioned? It also occurred to her, as Brent was grabbing something else to tie the boogeyman's body with, that there was no way of knowing if this would actually work. If he was a, you know, magical being, why would a blow to the head and a jump rope hold him? Of course, monsters were supposed to be powerful, and stronger than people are, certainly stronger than a couple of kids, and that turned out not to be the case in this instance. The boogeyman struggled, but it was weak, as though they were tying up a child, or again, their stick-thin grandmother. In fact, he seemed to have the body of an old man, now that they were near to him, and was not nearly as terrifying as he had been. Until. 
Rent and Briel Montrose, he rasped. You will restrain me no further, or face the direst retribution. So there you go. I, I feel like the story might be problematic. I don't know. I don't know how good it is, but I really did enjoy writing about Brielle Montrose, and it's very possible that I will follow this up with a continuation, like a part three of what happens with this. You know, my friend of misery is kind of a misnomer throughout most of this story because it's Brent's friend. And I would enjoy exploring more about, about the boogeyman, too, and the nature of friendship. Is it possible to befriend something like that? You know, I guess it's related, in a way, to the Lara and the Witch stories, where Lara is a good person and Holcomb is not. And how can you have a relationship with someone who is evil and not become evil yourself? And I don't know, I don't know. where this relationship would go beyond this book. But I would be curious to find out. In, in a way, it makes me feel bad that I ended it where I did, that I, you know, I could have pumped out another 20,000 words on it, but I didn't. And there's always the possibility that if people like this story, I can follow it up and explore Brielle as a young woman. And, you know, I, I don't know where it would go. With the Lara and the Witch stories, it's been kind of remarkable that Holcomb has become less evil, less corrupt by hanging out with Lara Deming, by having her as sort of a, a, a surrogate daughter. The thing that would be interesting in exploring, in doing a sequel to this is seeing if that same dynamic would exist with Brielle. I don't know. I don't know, Margo. But it's out there for you to buy if you'd like it. It was fun trying to come up with a voice for this being and a backstory for him and a personality for him. He surprised me as a character. And that makes me want to write more with him. So we'll, we'll see. If people like it, then I will continue it. You know, maybe if people don't like it, I will still continue with it. It's just nice to have another book out there. And it's fun to alternate between publishing short stories and publishing longer works. There's no end in sight. And I guess that's a good way of ending this episode is by saying that once I wrote My Friend of Misery, I didn't have that problem with the writer's block or the apathy that I was feeling before I wrote it. I just didn't want to write anymore. I didn't care. But here we are two years later, and I'm going stronger than I ever have before. And a lot of that is finding a muse. But 
a big part of it has also just been how satisfying it's been to write and to not get bored of it, to go on to another story and another character and another relationship and another parable and another time period and another genre. There's no end in sight, as I just said. So I want to thank Big Anklevich. I dedicated the book to him for getting me off my duff and encouraging me to write this. And I, I guess that's where I'll leave you. I am Rish Outfield. I am your friend of misery. Pleasant dreams. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. This burlap sack filled with squirming madness was produced under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license. That sounds crazy too, I realize, but it means that you may download and copy the files free of charge, but they do not belong to you. Hence, you cannot charge for them or alter them for your own perfidious purposes. Wow, perfidious. Yes, like your taint. Fair enough. Uh, please continue. And I urge you to consider going to www.patreon.com forward slash Rish Outfield to support the show if you would enjoy more of this madness. Good night. Guys were always coming around. Some of them charmingly. Ooh, no. Engagingly? Uh, appealingly? Sweetly is the word I want because it's persuasively, entrancingly, alluringly. How about coyly? Good enough. Huh. Guess what? It's frozen again. SeaWorld. Interesting. What a weird choice, SeaWorld. I went through, a, I, it was going to be Disneyland, it was going to be Legoland, it was going to be Knott's Berry Farm. That's, I actually typed Knott's Berry Farm and then changed it to SeaWorld and I don't know why. Perhaps she'll die. Guess what? Word is frozen again. Six, 17 minutes in and it's frozen three times. Yeah, that's me farting. Where it looked like it had in the 40s. Where it looked like it had in the 40s. Rather than the slapdash expansion. Rather than the slapdash expanse. Rather than the slapdash expanse. Rather than the slapdash expansion that had corrupted the other side of the building. Guess what? 24, 25 minutes in and it froze a fourth time. Wonderful. Uh, having seen him during assembly cuddling with Denise Rasmussen. Ooh, and it's D-apostrophe-N-E-E-S-E. -E -E. Okay, so the last bit uh, I had to do was Chandrasekhar. Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar being nosy? Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar being nosy, listening in on her conversation? Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar? Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar? Chandrasekhar? Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar? Was that better 
than Mrs. Chandrasekhar being nosy? Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar? Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar being... Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar? Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar being... A familiar whispered voice said, Was that better than Mrs. Chandrasekhar being nosy, listening in on her conversation? Now I don't know if I said it right or not. Is it Shekhar? Even though it's not got an S-H? Was that better than Mrs. Chandras Shekhar? Was that better than Mrs. Chandras Shekhar being nosy, listening in on her conversation? Was that better than Mrs. Chandra Sekar being nosy, listening in on her conversation? Oh, damn it. Sorry, there's a car blocking me. I guess I'll back up and see if I can get... Okay. We survived. Where was I? Uh, I was a little boy again in my childhood home. And... My brother's room was just down the hall from mine. And he, he woke me up, he came in, and he told me that the boogeyman was in his room and he was afraid. And I was not a very good big brother. So I yelled at him and I told him, you know, that he was an idiot and for him to go back to bed and to leave me alone. And he did. And then I thought about it and I thought, well, that was not nice. That was not cool. And I got up, maybe to go talk to him, or maybe to go to the bathroom, or I, 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 I don't know what it was. But I, I went out into the hall, and I could hear him in his bedroom. And I heard a male voice, a deep male voice, in the room with him saying something. And I knew that he was not making this up, that it had not been a dream, that the boogeyman was in his room with him. And it was terrifying. Apparently, senor is a Spanish word, so let's put it in italics. Rembrandt is a hard word to spell. And that's it. That was my whole dream. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you.